several speakers have talked about happiness. And I've discovered along the way that happiness, you, have, you live in two worlds here. Happiness is pleasure and happiness is joy. You know, it can be either one. You add them up and it sort of falls under the uber category of happiness. Pleasure is short-lived. Uh, it lasts an hour, lasts a minute, lasts a month. Um, and it uh, peaks and then goes down. It peaks very high. But the next time you want to get that same peak, you have to do it twice as much. You know, it's like drugs. You, know, just, you have to keep doing it because it insulates itself, no matter what it is, whether you're shopping, uh, whether you're uh, you know, engaged in any other kind of pleasure. Uh, that all has the same quality about it. On the other hand is joy. And joy is a thing that doesn't go as high as pleasure in terms of your emotional reaction. But it stays with you. Joy... Uh, it's something you can recall. Pleasure, you can't. Uh, so the secret is that even though it's not as intense as the pleasure, the joy will last you a lot longer. Um, and people who get the pleasure, they keep saying, well, if I can just get richer and get more cars, you know, I can, I'll never, you'll never relive the moment you got your first car. That's it. That's the highest peak. Yes, you can get three Ferraris and a new uh, uh, Gulfstream jet, and maybe you'll get close. But you have to keep going, and eventually you run out. I mean, you just can't do it. It doesn't work. So if you're trying to sustain that level of peak pleasure, you're doomed. It's a very American idea, but it just can't happen. You just let it go. Peak, great. Pleasure is fun. It's great. But you can't keep it going forever. Just accept the fact that it's here and it's gone. And maybe again it'll come back and you'll get to do it again. Joy lasts forever. Pleasure is purely self-centered. It's all about your pleasure. It's about you. It's, about, it's a selfish, self-centered emotion that's created by a self-centered motive of greed. Joy is compassion. Joy is giving yourself to somebody else or something else. And it's a kind of thing that is in its subtlety and lowness, much more powerful than pleasure. If you get hung up on pleasure, you're doomed. If you pursue joy, you will find everlasting happiness. an opening quote from George Lucas and I just love that quote about happiness and how everlasting happiness can come from pursuing things that bring you joy and then that was the opening the iconic opening music to Star Wars I mean you can hear the first two notes of that and, and know that it's going to be Star Wars 
uh, and that was just an epic score from John Williams, uh, who we've talked about before when we talked about Steven Spielberg. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about Star Wars and probably quite a bit about George Lucas. And I'm so excited and, and also nervous about this episode because it's, it's, it's freaking Star Wars. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is like a formative movie from my childhood that just really influenced a lot of uh, my interests and, and passions and worldview. And, uh, and also, it's our 200th episode. <laughs> Yay! We made it to 200. I know. Well, also, everybody on the planet has, in one way or another, I'm sure, heard of Star Wars, no matter For where sure. they are. Because it's just, it's just everywhere and has been for decades. So I was mentioning before we started this morning, I was nervous because I'm all over the place in terms of what to talk about. We could actually do like 10 episodes on George Lucas alone. He's such a creative genius. And an excellent business person. I've never met him, unfortunately, but from everything that I've seen and read, he just seems like a really down-to-earth, personable, cool person, too. So, I'd... I, I would like to have a, 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 him as a guest for dinner. That would be good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'd work. Maybe you could go to his uh, ranch up in uh, near San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, wow. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from sunny North Bend today. And this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles welcoming everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews and our review of Star Wars Episode Four, The New Hope from 1977. This is a big day. This is a big day for us, our 200 episodes. And thank you to our patrons. Let's see. Yeah, we're going to be releasing a retrospective episode on Patreon, uh, talking about our first 200 episodes. Um, and you had done a breakdown of kind of like genres of films that we've reviewed. And the number one most reviewed genre is science fiction. And here we are talking about Star Wars. So add that to the list. And it's even more than, than science fiction. It's It's philosophical it's religious i mean it's got every conceivable uh avenue of, of adventure and and learning it's just a wonderful wonderful film i remember you and i and uh mom and i uh we the four of us i'll get that right saw the the star wars movie in uh denver when we went there to uh visit family and we also went to a wedding but we went we, one afternoon we went to Cinerama and uh, I didn't know anything about it and we sat down and when it started it was like uh, I'll never forget that every time I see that opening and hear that music I get excited it's a wonderful wonderful experience you were probably six or seven and Ben what Ben would have been four well let's see it came out in May of 1977 yeah my birthday's in June so yeah six I think we're in Denver in June or July so it was right around your birthday time in fact it might it might have been your birthday was held in Denver I don't remember that yeah 1998 they re-released this movie to the theaters and it was like the special edition and it had like the new scenes and it had been fully restored and everything and um <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say I made 
10 go with me, but I kind of sort of did make 10 go with me. And we brought our youngest daughter, Haley, who was at that time about six months old to the theater. And it was absolutely packed. And, and we, and we, we watched Star Wars <laughs> when it was re-released. And, and uh, so Haley saw that movie when she was about six months old. And um, I'm not sure. I think she made, I think she did make it through the whole thing. Um, if I remember correctly, but yeah, that's how much I love this movie and, and wanted to be able to go see it when it came back out in the theaters. Uh, anybody who has small children, you will understand that taking a six month old to the theater is, is, is anxiety inducing to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a challenge. I remember that. I vaguely remember that. Just to get some of the background, uh, the official title as I was looking it up is Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope from 1977. Talk about a decision that was made by 20th Century Fox that was a good decision. It's this whole uh, beginning of the Star Wars franchise that goes on today stronger than ever. Yeah, when George Lucas wrote the original script, it was 250 pages long. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it would have been 10 episodes. And it was called, the, the subtitle of it was called The Tragedy of Darth Vader. He realized that there's no way that he could take a 250-page script to any studio and, and, or producer and, and try to get that made. So he decided to cut it into three movies. And he always had that arc of Darth Vader. And it was always, it was always going to be about that tragedy. And, it, you know, to me, it's, it's that mythological sort of hero's journey that Joseph Campbell talks about. Where you are is on the edge. You're about to embark into the outlying spaces. And there is where you meet people who've been out there, and they run the machines that go out there, and you haven't been there. <clears throat> the achievement of the hero is one that he is ready for, and it's really a manifestation of his character. And it's amusing the way in which the landscape and the conditions of the environment match the readiness of the hero. The adventure that he's ready for is the one that he gets. But then this can be seen also in the simple initiation ritual, where a child has to give up his childhood and become an adult, has to die, you might say, to its infantile personality and psyche and come back as a self-responsible adult. It's a fundamental experience that everyone has to undergo. We're in our childhood for at least 14 years, and then to get out of that posture of dependency, psychological dependency, into one of psychological self-responsibility requires a death and resurrection. And that is the basic motif of the hero journey, leaving one condition finding the source of life to bring you forth in a uh, richer or more mature or other condition. Or, you know, it's like a Shakespearean tragedy of decisions that you make that seem good at the time, but then end up being really terrible in the end, and how you can be redeemed. And, and, and family, it's about family. There's just so many different themes intertwined in, into the movie. Oh, I made a list of half a dozen of them. Yes, um, I, I did want to. I did want to mention also that it uh, had a budget when it, I think these are in current dollars of about eleven million dollars. 
And it was fairly successful since it's uh, grossed uh, almost $800 million just in the theatrical arena. It's amazing. When George got the original green light to make the movie, it was a, he had $3 million to make it. He was able to, through some, like you said, good business uh, practices, get the budget up to $13 million. That, and that was the, that's what he spent on the original movie, $13 million. Oh, okay. That was 1970s dollars. It was a risk. It was a risk for him because he had only made really two movies that were of any kind of size. THX, which he even says was a weird movie and nobody really went to see it. <laughs> it's, it's an excellent film, though. I've, I've watched it a couple times. It's really, really different. Yeah, it, it is worth watching for sure. Um, and then American Graffiti, which... Oh, that's, that's a great movie for anybody my age. Oh, totally. But you know what? The studios wouldn't release it. They wouldn't really... They all said it was terrible. And, <laughs> and so oh. he, he really was making Star Wars on the strength of kind of like his creative vision and, and talent, but not on the strength of any kind of success that he'd had with films that came out before this. Part of it had to be, uh, I think Alan Ladd Jr. Was the, was the executive that gave it the go-ahead to be made. And that was a risk for him. I think he was the CEO of 20th Century Fox at the time. But I, but I, wanted, to, I wanted to mention, too, that how would this be for an, uh, an evening, a pizza party watching films with this group of people? Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, just to mention four. And they were all kind of like good friends and buddies. And I, when I went down this detailed research of the Star Wars, the movie that we're eventually going <laughs> to talk about, the opening scroll, Brian De Palma watched it, and he said to Lucas, you know, that nobody's going to understand that. It's way too long. It's way too detailed. Let me, let me take a crack at, at re-editing it for you so that we can slim it down. And then Francis Ford Coppola was involved uh, with him. I'm not sure the extent or the degree, but these people were all just creative geniuses. And I haven't even mentioned them all. Yeah, Francis Ford Coppola was uh, really good friends with George Lucas. I mean, they were like roommates. He started American Zoetrope, right? Yes. Was the studio that backed American Graffiti which kind of tanked American Zoetrope because they weren't able to like get it released. So there, yeah, that that whole time period and and those people in particular, it's just amazing to me that they were all kind of in the same place at the same time and talking about movies and Spielberg in that in that pizza party that you're talking about where they were reviewing and kind of looking at the idea of what Star Wars was going to be said to George, "This is going to be the biggest movie in the history of film." And everybody around the table laughed, and even George laughed. He says, okay, well, um, <laughs> thanks for that, Stephen. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he was right, because, you know, Steven Spielberg knew what, what George was capable of and knew what he was trying to do. And there's a really great podcast called Blockbuster about this time period and, and how kind of how George and, and Stephen were interacting at that time. I'll put a link to that podcast in the show notes if you want, if you're interested. It's really great. Well, the, the, uh, it's just amazing that that talent, and I can imagine if you go back to the 1930s when film was coming out of the silent era into talkies, there would have been equal uh, discussions from the, uh, from the young directors at that time 
that went on to make such great movies. Many of them came from Europe, but many of them were here, like William Wyler and Billy Wilder. Uh, there were just so many. And, and then you fast forward 40 years, and here's this group, uh, probably in a two-bedroom apartment someplace in the valley. I, I learned something here uh, in all this research about Star Wars and George Lucas that, that I'll remember, which is uh, the reason why there are so many interesting movies in the 70s, which, which I agree, there's just so many interesting movies that we've looked at even and a lot that we haven't seen talked about yet but it's because a lot of the studio moguls those those people that really had a tight control over the studios had passed away by this time the corporations hadn't really come in to snatch up all the all the studios and so it was kind of this chaotic time and a lot of the people that were making decisions about what movies to make and where to spend money were not doing it just because of a return on investment. They were they were more doing it because they believed in the artist or they believed in the idea. I think that really shows in the kinds of movies that were made in the in the late seventies and into the early eighties. Yeah, it was a, it was sort of between the big studio system and then the corporate ownership that we see today. There was that period. And uh, Alan Ladd Jr. is just one of the many executives that were involved. There was uh, Shirley Lansing and, and many others that really went out on a limb. But they had to because the studios were, were really uh, strapped for, for resources and funds. We talked about this before with uh, our Steven Spielberg episodes, but this was really the time period where the blockbuster, the summer blockbuster was born. Oh, no kidding. Before this, we had Jaws. Uh, right after this, we had Close Encounters. There's a bunch of movies that lay the the foundation for what would become the summer blockbuster. Well, in in my life experience, it changed forever. The the tone and style and uh, enormity of of films in terms of the size and scope and budget. Uh, It was really unusual, like in the 50s. I, I remember seeing a couple of examples, Bridge on the River Kwai from 1957 and The Big Country from 1958, and then you fast forward to uh, Dr. Zhivago or uh, Lawrence of Arabia, but those were big roadshow pictures, but there weren't a lot of them. There were a lot of other films that that we've reviewed, but now it's sort of the mainstay of of the industry of these huge films for at least theatrical release, and there's so many of them. Yeah, and I think those films you mentioned, in addition to Seven Samurai from Akira Kurosawa, Hidden Fortress also from Kurosawa, uh, Bullet. He, he, George Lucas mentioned Bullet as a as an influence, uh, which we reviewed. One of the things that George Lucas said was that he wanted to achieve, and I quote, a patina of immaculate realism in Star Wars. And I, I can't think of I can't think of four better words to describe how this movie looks on the screen. It 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 just looks so lived in and so real and he said that up until star wars science fiction was thought of as this cold clean kind of future like 2001 uh, is a really perfect example of that which was also an influence on star wars in some ways but that george grew up working on cars and and he loved racing cars and and being in the garage and he says that that scene in the sand crawler when c-3po and r2d2 are picked up by the jawas and it's just dirty and there's oil on the wall and it's just it's just it looks like a garage that you would work on cars <laughs> it does it does
R2? R2D2, it is you! It is you! He's, that's so right on because like in the, the 50s, Forbidden Planet, which was kind of a breakthrough for science fiction films at the time, but everything looks clean and neat in it. All the uniforms, all the equipment, the house, the characters, everything. In this film, everything looks like it's been through about 10 years of rough rough service. The land speeder, all those. It's very lived in. They look so real. One of the reasons he thinks that Star Wars has had such longevity and holds up so well is that he filmed it in a way that it would just be like normal to see the Death Star or normal to see like uh, the Speeder or something like that. Because, uh, you know, if you're, if you're making a movie in New York, uh, and, he, and this was an interview with Christopher Nolan that I watched, and, and he says to Christopher Nolan, you know what New York looks like? It kind of looks like Gotham, and you kind of know what the buildings are like, and, and you don't have to linger on, on the buildings because you just kind of know what, it, what that is. And he says, I never lingered uh, on the Death Star. I, I would show it like as if you'd seen it a hundred times. And now... When people have watched the movie 20 times or 50 times or 100 times, that's exactly the way it is. Yeah, you've seen the Death Star 100 times. You know exactly what it looks like. And so he never felt like it was the special effects for the special effects sake. It was special effects for what it could do to propel the story forward. Right, right. And it was also done at a time when they had to actually physically go to a lot of these places to make it look as though it was from another time and place. Morocco, Tunisia, all over the world. Because they didn't have the technology today that they have today to do some of that with uh, the, the current setups. When I watch it, 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 it looks lived in. It looks like you, you could understand it. And it takes place at no particular time that it has any reference for us. Yeah, there's two things about the opening of the movie that really grab my attention um, and I think are such such genius little touches. One is that it's episode four. And so when you see episode four, you're like, uh, well, where's episode one through three? <laughs> Did I miss something? And it, and it creates an air of mystery around the film. Like you're, you're picking it up right in the middle of the action. And, and it leaves a lot to your own imagination about, uh, you know, when Obi-Wan talks about Luke's father and, and the Clone Wars and, and it's like oh what are, what's what are the Clone Wars? No, my father didn't fight in the wars. He was a navigator on a spice freighter. That's what your uncle told you. He didn't hold with your father's ideals. Thought he should have stayed here and not gotten involved. You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes, I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. I wish I'd known him. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy and a cunning warrior. I understand you've become quite a good pilot yourself. And he was a good friend. Which reminds me, I have something here for you. Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough, but your uncle wouldn't allow it. He feared you might follow old Obi-Wan on some damn fool idealistic crusade like your father did. Sir, if you'll not be needing me, I'll close down for a while. Sure, go ahead. What is it? Your father's lightsaber. 
This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. Not as clumsy or random as a blaster. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic. Before the dark times. Before the Empire. How did my father die? A young Jedi named Darth Vader, who was a pupil of mine until he turned to evil, helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. He betrayed and murdered your father. Now the Jedi are all but extinct. Vader was seduced by the dark side of the Force. The Force? Now the Force is what gives the Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, it penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. How Darth Vader killed his father, and, and you're like, oh, I wonder what that was all about. And then the other one is that um, it, it says that it, it takes place long ago in a galaxy far, far away. And, and you're like, oh, this happened in the past? Oh, whoa, that's, that's different. Usually all these things happen in the future. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's like a, it's a perfect fantasy. I mean that in the best of, of sense. It takes your mind to wherever you think you would want to go with that introduction. But at the same time, when I watch it, and I watched it again just yesterday, and I see new things every time, new things that I didn't see before. But parts of it remind me of things that are of our world. Just to mention a couple here. You know, when they're, when they're being pursued in the uh, chase against the, the evil empire, and they go up into those turrets to fight them off with the guns, that looks like it's right out of a World War II movie where they're in the B-17 or the B-24 and they're the aerial gunner with those cannons that are firing. Come on, buddy, we're not out of this yet. In, kid. Okay, stay sharp.
And they've set them up in the film to look like what were called Bofor guns from World War II on naval ships, the anti-aircraft guns. They would fire in a pattern of four movements. So that, that takes me back to that era. And then during the lightsaber uh, battle between Darth and Obi-Wan, it looks like something out of maybe a part of it out of a, a Robin Hood film and they're battling with swords. So, I mean, it, while it's got all these other things going for me, it also has touches of things that I would recognize just from other films or from the things that I've seen in serials that were out in the 1930s and 1940s. And the dogfight, those intergalactic space fights, that looked like airplane dogfights from the Korean War and, and World War II. So it's, it's, got, it's got so many dimensions to it. It was hard for me to figure out where, where will we go when we talk about this. And as I, as I thought, we're all over the place. We haven't even really talked about the plot. Because <laughs> I'll bet every listener that we have has, is familiar with the plot. It took over two years to write the script because he was doing a lot of research around the mythology. And what he was trying to achieve was a film that would be relatable to people all over the world in different cultures. And he wanted to pull in uh, aspects of mythology from all, all around the world. And I think, you know, you're picking up on a couple little pieces of that. You know, the sword fight or the lightsaber duel there on the Death Star you could look at that and say, well, that kind of reminds me of uh, Zorro or, or Robin Hood. Or you could look at it and say, oh, no, that's like the samurai uh, battles in the Kurosawa movies or, you know, other Japanese samurai movies. And Yes, uh, yes. You know, even the, 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 the design of Darth Vader's helmet and kind of the, the, the look of, of his costume um, is a throwback to some of those samurai films. It just shows the, the, the creativity of him. Like in the cantina scene with all those different people from different worlds and different backgrounds. <clears throat> but when, when the robot comes in, he right. can't stay. Right. He has to leave. He has to leave. And that reminds me of many films where the first the first people, uh, or Native American person is can't stay in the bar or the African American has to leave the room. I mean, here all these people in different characters, but the robot, the, the bartender says he's got to go out. We don't, we don't want him in here. Yeah, I, I watched a YouTube video recently called "The Tragedy of Droids in the Star Wars Universe," and if you think about that, droids are sentient beings. They act like thinking, and and in the case of C three PO, like a feeling being and you know he gets his feelings hurt and he's he's like indignant and yeah and he's he's always feeling put upon and and yet yeah i mean exactly it's a great way to extrapolate the experience of a lot of groups of of people in our real world that have similar things happening where they're excluded or they're not allowed or they're marginalized and and so to me that's I, that's got to be intentional, right? Like that way that he portrays the droids in, in the and, and yeah. in the newer movie um, Solo, there's a droid who says that, like, "Droid, droid, we are I'm gonna flip your switch. Good luck finding it. L three. Let go of the mean man's face. We're leaving. They don't even serve our kind here. No. <laughs> Who are these guys? 
We're taking them to Kessel. Who are we? And what if I don't elect to go to Kessel? It, it's it's very <laughs> tragic what happens to to the droids in in the films. And then another uh, scene in the cantina is it's like an old west gunfight when when uh, Han Solo shoots that guy. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> Just take that. Boom. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to mention but not dwell on was the re-canonization of Star Wars in the special editions where it was one thing in 1977 when it was released and then and then there were changes made for different reasons and some of them I think were because George was trying to achieve the original vision of the film and then some I feel like were made because times had changed. A film from 1977 is going to read differently in, in 1997, right? Or, or 2017. Um, oh yeah, we see that all the time when we go back and do a review from a film in like 1939 or 1944 in today's environment. Yeah, absolutely. And the technology was so different then too. This is a quote. In the end, you want the movie to be the way you intended it. And I, I feel like George did the best that he could in 1977 with Star Wars the way that it was released. And it, it was a sensation, right? It was groundbreaking and it, it changed cinema. I remember reading that people would go see it, come out of the theater and immediately go get back in line to watch it again. And it was like that kind of a movie where it, you watched it and then you just wanted to go see it again because it was such an amazing spectacle. I have a quote on that one, or a, I guess a paraphrase rather than a quote. The producer was Gary Kurtz. And he was really nervous when it came out in its original distribution. Was it going to be successful or not? And he was on a radio talk show being interviewed. And a caller called in. They had call-ins. And this caller called in and said he'd been to see it four times that day. Four times in one day. And Kurt said, that's when I realized this was probably <laughs> going to be a hit. <laughs> when you're a creative person and you're putting something together... It's so nerve-wracking because you don't know how it's going to be received. Even even though you've put your heart and soul into it and you've done everything you possibly can to make it the best thing that you can make and you try to get it as close to your vision as possible, and, and yet you still don't know for sure how it's going to be received. And George was asked by Christopher Nolan, like, when did you know that Star Wars was a blockbuster? And he says, I never knew. I never really knew because... It's just it's just the way that a creative person's mind works. You 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 never you never get to that point where you're like, oh, okay, that was that was a success. Because in, I think from what I can tell in reading about this, it it still wasn't quite the way that he wanted it to be, and that's why the special edition was created because he wanted to try to move it closer to that vision. Yeah. If, if you could see the future and pick the lottery numbers and win the lottery, you know, but you can't do that. You 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 just try your best and, and see what happens and turned out well for him. We've seen that with other films where uh, several years later the director comes out with a director's cut of, of, a, of a film that they made earlier and they want to improve it or go back to the original concept that may have gotten changed along the way. And uh, I, I think that the, the, the re-release with the special effects improved it when the Death Star finally gets its... Uh, comeuppance that's a much more dramatic scene than it was i think in the original i've forgotten now what the original 1977 version was like but it didn't have the dramatic effect of 
of the version that I watched yesterday. It's very controversial, I think, on some of those changes that were made, but I, I would say that it does sit better in the, the first six movies. My ol- oldest son and I watched all of the Star Wars movies a couple of weekend for several months. I know there's different orders that you can watch them in, but we decided just to go from episode one all the way through. When you start from episode one and, and then you, you get to episode four, it, it sits much better in, in that that chronological viewing with the changes that were made, like some of the, the new special effects. And it was Return of the Jedi where when they blow up the second Death Star, they cut to different scenes like the Ewok village, and then they cut back to Coruscant, and they cut to uh, Naboo, I think was one that they had shown in the original trilogy. And that ties the whole thing together better uh, with those kinds of changes, I think. I think at the heart of the movie for me that makes it one that I love so much is summarized by Mr. Lucas uh, when he said, the plot is simple, good against evil, and the film is designed to be all the fun things and fantasy things I remember. The word for this movie is fun, and it really is. Still, It's still fun, and I still get emotional watching it, and George said that it was a razzle-dazzle of visual fantasy. And that's a good, I like that, that kind of take on it. It's a family story, I think, in, in the heart of it. It's, a, it's about a son who was, a, was orphaned, at least in his mind, and then, and then is reunited over the course of the three films with his father and, and, and the redemption of his father. This idea that you just never give up hope for somebody. I love the arc of Luke Skywalker because he starts out being so whiny and... I think those new drugs are going to work out fine. In fact, I, uh, also thinking about our agreement, about me staying on another season. And if these new droids do work out, I want to transmit my application to the Academy this year. You mean the next semester before the harvest? Sure, there's more than enough droids. Harvest is when I need you the most. Only one season more. This year we'll make enough on the harvest that I'll be able to hire some more hands, and then you can go to the Academy next year. You must understand, I need you here, Luke. But it's a whole nother year. Look, it's only one more season. Yeah, she said when Biggs and Tank left. Where are you going? It's like I'm going nowhere. I have to go finish cleaning those droids. Oh, and he can't stay here forever. Most of his friends have gone. It means so much to him. I'll make it up to him next year. I promise. <laughs> Luke's just not a farmer, Owen. He has too much of his father in him. That's what I'm afraid of. by the end of the movie he's really matured and and uh and then by the end of jedi uh return of the jedi it's like okay now he's a jedi really see that that path that he was on it's like you want to see growth in a character and and the way that he acts is just it's just perfect like a teenager stuck out on a farm in the middle of nowhere hearing about all these adventures happening off in the galaxy and and he's an amazing pilot and he's great with 
with mechanical things and he's got all these skills and dreams and yet he's stuck he's stuck in he looks like he's at the end of the world he really is at the end of the world you know and but then but then the outside world like intrudes upon this little bubble that he's living in and events take over in a way that he has no control over right like he he has no control over the fact that these droids uh, got jettisoned no. down to his planet where he lives, and he has no control over the fact that the Empire is there with the the stormtroopers, and the stormtroopers like killed his uncle and aunt and burned his his home, and um and and then you know and and this old cranky like wizard, I love that they call him a wizard in the movie, uh, living out in the desert. <laughs> has been there the whole time and keeping an eye on him. Yeah. And I knew your father and he was a great one of the greatest pilots ever and a good man and a and a you know good friend and one of my favorite scenes in in movie history is when Luke and Obi-Wan are in Obi-Wan's little hut there and and Obi-Wan is showing him the lightsaber and talking about his dad. I mean, I just love that scene so much. Alec Guinness was was perfect in that part as was Peter Cushing, can't fail. I can't can't forget Peter Cushing as the the uh, the epitome of a Nazi general. That's all I could think of when I saw him. Is like this guy was was in the Gestapo or in one of those. Yeah, the Empire was definitely patterned after the the Nazis for sure. I did want to kind of go to a little different part of the movie, and that's the music of John Williams which is as equally genius as George Lucas. I mean, how these got together and created this, and then it went on to so many other movies. I just, the, I have two favorite musical scores. I, mean, I have many, but these two stick in my mind. One is the music from Once Upon a Time in the West, that haunting music by uh, Endio Marconi. I, I love that. And then this this music, entirely different kind of music, but... As far as I know, John Williams is still active. He's 89 years old and still still working, and he's done so many different things. He's been nominated for 52 Academy Awards. 52 in seven decades of work. And he went on with music and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Saving Private Ryan and Lincoln and on and on. And every, I mean, there, I don't think there's anyone that would, that would hear that music but like you say, within two seconds, they know that's what that's from. It's that iconic. The power of the movie would not be as strong without that music. It's almost a miracle when you hear George Lucas talk about the making of this movie. And if you've ever been involved in any kind of filmmaking at all, even even a small budget independent film, and how many challenges there are and how uncertain it all is. And, you know, just how is this all going to come together? And And then you see something like Star Wars with the music and the the visuals and the special effects and the cinematography, the location shooting, the the crazy costumes, the the story, everything came together just so perfectly in this film. It, it, it just really does seem almost like a miracle to me how well it turned out. It makes me appreciate, and I'm glad that uh, he was unable to buy the Flash Gordon a series and information they they wouldn't sell it because he he went out and just invented his own i love that quote i i have that he said to uh francis ford coppola well i'll just invent my own 
because they, they couldn't they wouldn't sell Flash Gordon. But you know, it makes me respect even more. We we interviewed Jimmy Custis a few months ago on a podcast, and he's an independent film producer, director, and actor in Louisville, Kentucky. Just what he has to go through on that scale of production to get something done, written, and onto a onto a streaming service or a film or or into a theater. It's at any level. It's it's daunting to say the least. I was on the crew of a couple films from uh, a friend of mine who was an independent film uh, director producer. Yeah, it's just just being on the set and and all the things that you have to coordinate to to make that happen. It was George's third production that was of a, of a significant size, and he had to go to England because that was the only place that they could get eleven sound stages that they needed for the production. Because at this point in time. The studios were using all their sound stages for television, and they couldn't get eleven sound stages all at the same kind of location uh, at the same time. And so, not only did he have to, you know, coordinate the production of of all of the sets and the get the actors and the script and do the directing, but he also had to work with a very cantankerous uh, British film crew. <laughs> Steven Spielberg <laughs> has talked about this, and Christopher <laughs> Nolan has talked about this, and they sort of take a wait-and-see attitude, even to a director who has maybe made a couple big movies uh, when when they come to England. And they have very, at the time anyway, I'm not sure what it's like today, but at the time in the 70s, they had very strict union rules about when they could work. They absolutely had to end at 5.30, uh, unless they were in the middle of a shoot, and then they could get an additional 15 minutes uh, but the the studio uh, sound stages were run on generators, and they would just flip the switch off at five thirty. Okay, we're done. You know, and it's like <laughs> I think we've even I I think I've even seen that in a film that I was watching with my friend John. That actually happened on the that was I don't know what the film was, but well, the other thing that he had to do is Twentieth Century Fox had sort of disassembled their special effects department, so. He said, oh, okay, I'll just invent my own. And out of that came industrial light and magic. The man is just so talented. There was only three matte painters in the world that were of any quality. And he had worked a lot with animation and animation cameras. And so he said that they would use this rotary cam photography, which was a modified animation camera, but that they had to build it. And he was selling, he was selling this idea to the producers without actually ha- having one that was working, you know? It was like... <laughs> I mean, just think of the, the, the challenges. He, I don't think the man ever slept. He ended up in the hospital because of the stress of putting this together. Um, so, yeah, it, it took a toll for sure. I think, we should, I think we should make this part one, and then in part two we could actually talk about the movie because we, we barely even talked about the movie. Well, that may be part three, <laughs> the, the way we're going. All right. Cool. Well... Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, We'll be back with more Star Wars in the next episode. And coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt. And here in Los Angeles, it's Bob. Wishing everybody happy uh, movie watching, and we'll be continuing soon.